And we sure do like being independent people, don't we? We like independence. We don't like relying on other people for things that we can do ourselves. The, the, one of the greatest examples is this, just seeing children grow up. How much they love being able to feed or dress or bathe themselves as they get older. They get to do more and more. And parents will gradually give their children more and more independence, leading up to the day when we get to move out of the house, where we think we experience true independence. And it can seem quite thrilling to know that you can take care of yourself, to be able to buy your own groceries, to make your own rules, to pay your own bills, to go where you want to go, when you want to go, with whom you want to go. And we, get, we love that thrill of independence that we get when we move out. You know what? No matter how much we enjoy independence, we can't be completely independent people, can we? We do rely on others all the time. No matter how hard we try to do things on our own, we need help every day. You think on a society-wise, we need people, other people, to keep society running around us as a whole, to make sure stores and schools and banks and hospitals and governments work well and organize. We don't sew all our own clothes or grow all our own food from scratch. And we hardly ever actually build the structures that we live in today, in our homes, in our apartments. On a much larger scale, there are things that happen all the time that are simply out of our control. Diseases and disasters, depression, wars, occupational or relational difficulties. These are things that we have very little to no control over. We can't even control the fact that we wake up alive every morning. And we, independence-loving humans, find ourselves needing to be dependent. We need someone to rely on. We end up needing that. Well, the Bible teaches us that not only do we have a God that we can rely on in times of need, but we have a God that we should rely on at all times, no matter what the season. And as Christians... It's a struggle, but we have to learn that dependence on our Heavenly Father. Today, we're going to take a little bit of a break from our new series on Luke, and I'm just going to give you a bit of a devotional sermon from a psalm, or a biblical song this morning. Psalm 54. But I don't want you to turn there yet. Don't turn to Psalms, because there's a story behind this psalm that is quite important to understanding what's going to be written in the lyrics. So take your Bibles, and I would ask you to turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, chapter 23. If you have a pew Bible from in front of you, it's on page 246. You'll find 1 Samuel 23. So this is after Joshua, Judges, Ruth, before 2 Samuel. And as you turn there, I'd like to ask God that he would send his spirit to speak through his words to us today. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look into these pages of your word, I pray that you would open our eyes to your blessings, that you would open our eyes to your power and your strength, to your ability to help us in our lives where we can do nothing on our own. I pray that your spirit would guide us into all truth as you promised you would send him to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're in 1 Samuel. 
And much of 1 Samuel tells the story of David. And David is well known for two things primarily, being a shepherd boy who killed the giant Goliath and being a great king who ruled over Israel. 1 Samuel 23 is going to take place in the, between those two times, when David was a soldier in King Saul's army. And David had achieved great fame in Israel as a soldier because of Goliath and other battles that he had fought in. And this fame ignited the king's jealousy. And the king Saul thought that David might try to take his throne because of all the popularity he achieved in the country. So he tried on a number of times to either capture or kill David. Thus, David spent many of these in-between years on the run, fleeing from Saul. And I believe he learned in the midst of these times what we were just talking about, how to be completely dependent on God, no matter what was going on around him. Chapter 23 is in the middle of one of these times that he's hiding away from Saul. David had just taken some of his followers and saved the town of Calah from the Philistines. And when David heard, or when Saul heard that they were there, he set off to attack David at Calah. But David heard of this coming attack, so they left the town. And we're going to read, starting in verse 13. It says this, 1 Samuel 23, 13, Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. This situation was out of David's control. He had just, he, all he could do was keep moving and running and hiding. Notice that this doesn't say David kept escaping from Saul. You didn't see that there, did you? It says, but God did not give him into his hand. God was the one who was doing the saving, and David was just depending on God's salvation. The story continues in verse 15. It says this, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, who happened to be David's best friend, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. But then, a big complication comes up in the next paragraph. David and his entourage, we just read, were hiding in the wilderness of Ziph. And at first, these Ziphites had welcomed David into their land to hide. But then they thought, what happens if the king finds out we helped hide his enemies? What happens then? We're aiding and abetting a known fugitive. Even if he is the better man, we're helping him out. So, these people decided to rat out David's hiding place and go and tell Saul. In verse 19, it says, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? 
Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, to take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. So they went back, did Saul's bidding, but we see Saul followed them. He did end up going, taking their advice, and he made plans once again to pursue David thanks to these treacherous Ziphites. Now, during this time, David trusted God. He relied completely on God's deliverance. Now, it doesn't outright say that here in 1 Samuel. But I know this because somewhere in here, somewhere in this part of the story, David decided to write a song. And so I want you this morning to take some kind of bookmark, maybe tear off a piece of your bulletin and put it in at 1 Samuel 23. We're going to come back to it. But I want you to turn over to Psalm 54. Psalm 54, page 475 in the Pew Bibles. This is the song that David wrote. But before we actually read the words of the psalm, I want you to notice the very top, which is called the superscription. It's the description of the situation at the top of the psalm. It says this, To the choir master with string instruments, a maskil of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? So, he wrote this maskil, which was likely a type of song, during the time we just read about. And this is what he sung. Psalm 54, verse 1. O God, save me by your name, and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So, this is what he wrote in this time. And the words that David pens here give us a few principles to live by, even to this day, because we serve the same God that David did. The major overarching theme of this psalm is this. This is the first thing in your notes, that in every season, God is our helper. In every season, no matter what's going on in our lives, God helps us and upholds our life. In every season, the Lord is our help and our helper. Now, I'm going to describe to you a little bit of Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry, which the Psalms were part of, often used a technique that has no equal in English. It doesn't usually translate well. And they use, it's because they usually rhymed thoughts instead of rhyming words or meter like we would do in English poetry. They rhymed thoughts. And one of the ways they did this was called chiasm. 
and it's been described as writing in a pyramid. And basically, I'm going to explain it, they'd start by saying one thing at the very beginning of the psalm, in the first part, the beginning of the poem. And then, at the very end, they would echo or contrast that same thing that they wrote at the beginning. Then, the second thing they would write would correspond with the second to last thing in the psalm. And the third thing would correspond with the third last, all the way leading up to the middle of the psalm. So it would build in both directions to the middle, which is usually where the poet would make their main point. The pinnacle of the song declared the most important thing that he wanted to get across. Now, that's a very technical description of something they often did in poetry, and you might not get it at first, and that's okay. But I explain that because I want you to try to see the poetry in this song that he wrote. Okay, In the first verse, David says this, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. So he prays for salvation. Now, in the last verse, verse 7, he says salvation has come. It says, for he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Now, verse 2 and verse 6 describe David's two actions. He prays on the front end, and he praises on the back. See this? In verse 2, it says, O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. And then in verse 6, he says, With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Okay? Verse 3 talks about the enemies that have risen against David. Talking about the Ziphites, the strangers, and then Saul being the ruthless man that seeks his life. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Well, it contrasts with that. Verse 5. Verse 5 talks about being saved from those enemies. It says, The Lord will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. So the pyramid has built up from both directions. And we come to the middle. What does the pinnacle say? In verse 4. It says, He, and behold, God is my helper. The Lord is is the upholder of my life. This is what David wants anyone singing or reading this psalm to notice most. His focus, his pinnacle, is that God is his helper. It's like this. God, save me. I will pray because enemies have risen against me. God is my helper. And because of that, my enemies will fall. And I will praise because God has saved me. You get that poetry? It's really beautiful. Now, if you think, and we're saying God is our helper, if you think of how we use the word helper today, you might think of some kind of assistant or apprentice. In some uses, the word has come to mean weak or minor help, like mommy or daddy's little helper, right? <laughs> I, if I ask you to come and help me do something, say, help me wash my car, it would mean that I am doing the work, and I'm just asking you to come and supplement my work, to help me out. But God, as our helper, is much more than just supplements or assistance for our work. 
The fact that God is our helper does not denigrate God by any means. Being our helper isn't a show of weakness for him. In fact, it is a show of strength and might. As David prayed in verse 1, Save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. See, when God helps us, We aren't the ones doing the work. He is. He helps us by doing things that are absolutely impossible for us to do, or by providing the power for us to do things that we could never do without Him. Really, we can do nothing without Him. He helps us. We see this so many times in the psalm. He helps us by saving us and vindicating us and delivering us O God, save me by your name, vindicate me by your might. Verse 7, for he has delivered me. My eyes looked in triumph on my enemies because of him. He helps us by hearing and by answering our prayers. As verse 2 says, O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. He helps us by protecting us from harm, as David prayed for protection from his enemies. And when it seems like he doesn't protect us, he helps us through those difficult seasons by his grace. He even helps keep, by keeping us breathing. As he said in the second half of verse 4, the Lord is the upholder of my life. We are not the upholders of our own life. We cannot do it without him. God's help is powerful, frequent, gracious, good, and it's unstoppable. You might think as we read this, well, God was David's helper. That was very clear. But what makes you think he's still our helper? Is he our helper still? Well, the entire Bible repeats this idea many, many times, even in the New Testament. Do you know what Jesus promises followers about the Holy Spirit? When he said he'd send the Holy Spirit to earth after him? John 14, Jesus said this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another what? Helper. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit is called our capital H, Helper. And that Helper will not just help us, but he will dwell in us and with us. We have God's helping power within us now through the Holy Spirit. And Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 promises all believers. says, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is still our helper. I want us to remember this today. Behold, as David says, God is our helper. He's our helper. He's our help, as the song says, in ages past, and he's our hope for years to come. The truth that this describes implies a couple very clear applications for us as God's people. For today, I'm going to focus on just two specific applications that we see in this psalm, from the two ways that David responded to God's help, before and after his problem. So no matter where you are, no matter what season you are in, this applies to you. The first one is this. Just like David, God is our helper, so we should pray with confidence that he hears us. 
Because God is our helper, we should pray. We should pray with confidence and trust that he hears us when we do. Like we alluded to earlier, our lives are way more out of control than we think. We think we're in control. Or at least where we think we're in control, often we are not. We need to learn dependence and reliance on God, our helper. How we learn this dependence, I believe, is through prayer. And how we tap into his helping power is through prayer. And how God usually actually helps us is through answering our prayer. This is why David prayed in verse 2, Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Even the fact that he was saying these words implied his trust that God would hear him. Did you know that God hears your prayers? You know that? That truth should astound us. Why would an infinite, transcendent deity even care the least bit about our lives? Why would he? But we know that God is our creator. And by his grace, he loves his creations. And he is also a God who communicates, who reveals, who speaks. And he wanted a way that his creation could communicate back to him. And that's why he created prayer. So we, as humans, weak, small, insignificant seemingly, humans can communicate or talk back to our creator. There are so many blessings that I believe are left ignored or unclaimed because we do not pray more often. God gives us peace and comfort through stormy seasons, through prayer. God grants us joy and blessings to enjoy in the sunny seasons because of prayer. God heals our physical pains and our diseases through prayer. God delivers us from harm's way or from those who would hurt us through prayer. God builds our character, the fruits of the Spirit in our lives through prayer. And when we don't pray, or don't pray with persistence or frequency, how many of those blessings do we miss out on? We know, though, that God doesn't only hear our prayer. He responds to prayer, and he answers prayer. Sometimes not in the way we'd expect or in the way we'd hope, but always for the best. Always because he knows best. Sometimes not how quickly we'd like but always in his time. Sometimes he says no to our prayers, but no is a response, and it's because, again, he knows best. He has good reasons. But he hears us, and he responds. And here we know God heard and answered David's prayer here. Remember that this, his situation, the Ziphites had just betrayed him to Saul, and he said in verse 3, Ruthless, or strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life, they do not set God before themselves. But in verse 5, he expresses confidence that because God is his helper, God will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness, put an end to them. That's pretty hard. Why would God put an end to his enemies? Why is David so harsh asking for this? Well, these people, if you think about it, 
by betraying David, were trying to kill him. That's exactly what Saul would have done to David. And so by, they were guilty of attempted bloodshed. They were not innocent bystanders in this situation. And David, by asking for this, was really only asking for what God had already promised him as his anointed faithful follower. God had promised early in his life to bring down his enemies before him, to clear the way for him to become king. Also, if you notice, David is never taking things into his own hands here. He is trusting God to be the one to deliver him. He's asking for God's just judgment to come, not his own. God always brings justice, whether in this life or in the life to come. And David asks here that their evil, the evil that these people are doing, would backfire on them. So the NIV says, let evil recoil on those who slander me. We don't know how or when these, people, these people's evil would have backfired on them. But we do know that God delivered his servant David. We know this. He, David switches to speaking in past tense in the last couple of verses in the psalm. He says, for God has delivered me from every trouble. My eyes have looked in triumph on my enemies. I want you to flip back. Remember your bookmark in 1 Samuel? We're going to see how this happened. Flip back to 1 Samuel. How did God deliver him? In verse 24, halfway through where the new paragraph begins there, it says this, Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David after David in the wilderness of Maon. So he, Paul, or Saul just keeps pursuing David with evil intent, and David always seems just a step ahead of him, pursuing all the way through the wilderness. But here, Saul began to close in on his prey. In verse 26, It says, Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men went on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul, as Saul and his men were closing in on David, and his his men to capture them. So they were just about to finally capture them after years of chasing. When all of a sudden, verse 26 again, as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come. For the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. So God actually used the foreign nation nearby, the enemy, the Philistines, to come and attack at the perfect time. And Saul was forced to abandon his pursuit of David and go and save his country from the Philistines instead. And after that, as I said, the location where God delivered David began to be called Selah Hamalakath, or as most versions graciously translate, (laughs) the Rock of Escape. Did you know that we as Christians have a Rock of Escape? In our lives, we are constantly pursued and oppressed by sin. 
And if we do not escape our sins, our sins will one day catch up to us, and they will destroy us. Not just physically, but eternally. They will put an end to us. Sin always leads to death. But God didn't want these creations that he loved to perish. So he sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place, taking our punishment on himself. And if we put our trust in Jesus, he saves us. He frees us from sin, from Satan, from death. If you've never trusted in Jesus to save you, you must do this today. You must do this. Jesus is our rock of escape. He is the rock, he is our solid rock, and he is how we escape sin forever. And once we, all of us, behold how God has graciously answered our prayers, and how we see how he has mercifully given us salvation, we should respond. And this is the final thing we'll see today in Psalm 54. This is how David responded to God's salvation. And the principle is the same for us. In every season, God is our helper, and we should respond to his goodness with sacrificial thanksgiving. Because he is our helper, we should be sacrificial, and we should be grateful. We should respond to his goodness with sacrifice and thanksgiving. We see this back in Psalm 54 one last time. So flip there, page 475, Psalm 54, verse 6. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. David promised two things back to the Lord in return for his deliverance. First, he says, I will sacrifice with a free will offering. This is a type of sacrifice, and a Free will offering, as its name implies, was not required by the law or by any rituals or by any events. This was an extra offering that someone could bring by their own choice anytime when they, whenever they just wanted to show some extra gratitude to God. They're thankful for what he's done for them, so they bring something to show that, that thanksgiving. It was still a sacrifice, though. David had to give something up to God in order to make the offering. But for David, he knew whatever he had to give was worth showing his thanks to God. And his second response relates to the first completely, and that is verbally giving thanks to God. In verse 6, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. How often do we show our gratefulness to God? what he's done for us. He is our helper, and he is good. As it says, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Thanksgiving should be the first words on our lips when we pray. It should be the reason that we give of our money or our resources back to God or to his work. It should be the reason that we serve or the reason we reach out to the less fortunate around us. Thanksgiving should be the heart of the reason that we worship God. 
It should be why we gather to praise God together on Sunday mornings. Overflowing with thanks to Him. All because we are grateful to God for how He has helped us. Notice in Psalm 54 the format of David's response here. He says, I will do this for he has done this. I will sacrifice and I will give thanks for he has delivered me. What's your thankful response to God? He's the one that's delivered. What will you do for what he has done? Remember, this may take sacrifice on your part. You may want to give something back to God. We all live under grace. So this is not a rule or a requirement. But just as David did, we can make free will offerings of whatever we have to show God our gratitude. Anytime, thank Him. We can sacrifice our time or our money or our possessions or our words or our lives to serve Him. No matter how we choose to respond, no matter what we do, it should extravagantly show our gratitude. Because God is our helper. Jesus is our rock of escape. And He has sent us a helper that dwells inside of us. We can do nothing without Him, but everything through Him.